Our text for this morning is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And this is the word of God. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, uh, um, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Pray with me, please. Father, help us this day. Um, to hear from you in your word, to be encouraged, to be convicted, to be challenged, to grow to your glory. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus will come back. He promised that he would. But he chose not to tell us when that would be. And so we who live in the age between Jesus' first and second comings must Wait, but how do we await his coming? What things do we need to know, to believe, to do, as we long for the day when Jesus comes back? At the end of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus began to teach his disciples about how to await his return. After emphasizing for us that no person will be able to map out the exact day or hour of his return, Jesus began a series of illustrations and parables to help us to catch key points about how to live during this age. And that series of illustrations and parables continues with three major ones in chapter 25. And like the end of Matthew 24, these parables are going to show us things to do and things to watch out for. Last week in those first two illustrations... Jesus warned us not to let the long delay before his return lull us to sleep. You and I are to remain spiritually awake, and we're to be ready for his return. Then Jesus pointed out that being prepared for his return includes being faithful to his commands. As as good servants follow their master's commands, even when he's not in the house. There will be great joy and great reward, the Savior showed us, for those who follow him faithfully in this age. And there will be great sorrow for those who refuse to follow him during this age. As we move forward this morning, we're going to take a look at the the parable known as the parable of the ten virgins. It's the first of three that we will find in Matthew chapter 25. And as we study this parable... We're going to find one really strong warning in four key points. 
Now, the parable here, the story, is not difficult to understand. Jesus uses the image of a wedding processional to make a significant point. This is a parable. Parables are stories that teach spiritual truths from an understandable earthly story. By the way, that doesn't mean that I'm telling you that every parable is easy to understand, but the images that are in the story were commonly understood. Farmers, and lamps, and oil, and things like that. But this, this parable, it is a parable. It's not an allegory. You say to me, I, I don't have any idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> it's a, it uses understood things to teach us as images. But it's not the kind of story where every individual element has a symbolic truth tied to it. That's what allegory is. An allegory is a story where every piece has a symbolic spiritual meaning inside or some sort of symbolic meaning. So when we study this, because it's a parable, we don't have to say, ah, the torches represent this, and ah, the oil represents that. And since they were in a wedding, the wedding garment represents this. And since there's a door, the door represents that. We don't have to do that. What we do is study the story to see some very clear truths about how you and I think and act in the age before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's find our first point. It's a simple truth. And what we'll do is we'll build to an application point at the end. Point number one, appearing Christian does not make you a Christian. Point number one is appearing Christian does not make you a Christian. Verses one through five read, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But guys, the idea of a wedding processional, bridesmaids, torches, all the rest, that would be very familiar thinking to the person who heard this story in the first century. All those elements were normal things. Now, this story does have an unexpected twist in it, as does many a parable, but the images are easy for the people who first heard it. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Matthew, does a very good job of describing for us the basics of a Hebrew marriage celebration and tradition. So I just want to read from his commentary for just a second, if you'll indulge this. He says, quote, A Jewish marriage consisted of three parts, the first of which was the engagement, most often arranged by the fathers of the bride and groom. The, the engagement amounted to a contract of marriage, in which the couple had little, if any, direct involvement. The second stage was the betrothal, the marriage ceremony at which the bride and groom exchanged vows in the presence of family and friends. At that 
point, the couple was considered married, and their relationship could be broken only by formal divorce, just as if they had been married for many years. If the husband happened to die during the betrothal, the bride was considered a widow, although the marriage had not been physically consummated and the two had never lived together. The betrothal could last for many months, sometimes a year, during which time the groom would establish himself in a business, trade, or farming, and would make provision for a place for the couple to live. At the end of the betrothal period, the wedding feast would be held. And it was in the feast and its related celebrations that the entire community became involved. This festivity, which could last a week, began with the groom's coming with his groomsmen to the bride's house, where her bridesmaids were waiting with her. Together, the bride and groom and their attendants would then parade through the streets proclaiming that the wedding feast was about to begin. The procession was generally begun at night, and lamps or torches were used by the wedding party to illumine their way and attract attention. At the end of the feast period, a close friend of the groom, who acted much like a best man, would take the hand of the bride and place it in the hand of the groom, and the couple would, for the first time, be left alone together. The marriage would be consummated, and the couple would henceforth live together in their new home. It was that third part of the marriage rite that Jesus used as the framework for this parable. Well, as Dr. MacArthur described, the marriage feast was a major event. It often took place at night. And the picture is in the story of ten young women who were supposed to take part in escorting the bride and bridegroom to the feast. They were to be dressed in wedding garments. They were to have lamps that were ready. And when the bridegroom came, they were to greet him with joy and celebrate with him. Well, by the way, the word for lamps here is probably best understood as what you would think of as a torch. They were, they were probably wooden poles with cloths or rags wrapped around the top. And when it was time to light up the night, the rags could be doused in oil so that the, they would burn brightly and steadily. Well, the first twist, the first surprise in the parable comes with the knowledge that of the ten young women, five of them were so foolish as not to bring oil for their torches. Now, you've got to get this. This is not a simple oversight. Okay, this is, this is not... Um, I came to church and I brought my bag, but I meant to put another pencil in and didn't. The job of these women, the job they agreed to do, was to agree to carry a burning torch as part of the processional. For them not to have oil was for them to refuse to do the task they were assigned. You know, coming to my head right now, it would almost be like at a wedding if the bridesmaids came and said, you know, I didn't bring the dress you told me to wear. I just am going to do something else. You've got to see it as that much of a neglect of duty. Well, the young women waited for the bridegroom to arrive and start the processional, but the evening wore on and it gets late and all ten women fall asleep. Now, again, no, there's no condemnation here in this passage, in this parable, for the women sleeping. 
This is not the parable of the homeowner and the thief from chapter 24. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't have fallen asleep. The women were there to be ready for the bridegroom's arrival, and it was perfectly fine in this setting to rest until he came. Okay, now, let's pull back from the story. Because here we can see a couple truths. One fact that we ought to see is that Jesus is here hinting to us, even in this teaching, that there might be a long delay between the time of his first coming and his second coming. Although many early Christians believed Jesus could return very soon, even during their lifetimes, it has been almost two millennia since Jesus ascended into heaven. So the delay has been a bit longer than many people were expecting. But the delay did not catch Jesus off guard. But during the period of delay, you know what we need to know? There are going to be many people who claim that they are the servants of Jesus. Many people are going to find their way into the chairs and pews of local churches. And on the surface, many of those people are going to look alike. But that is not to say that all who sit in local churches are actually genuine believers. In the parable, ten women all dressed like bridesmaids, all ten of them spent time with the bride. All ten carried torches. But we're going to find out that there's a big difference between one group of five and another. And even before we catch the big twist of the parable, learn the important fact that appearing Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Guys, this has been true all through Matthew's gospel. Jesus talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. Those were evil men who appeared to be harmless, but they were actually very dangerous people. Jesus gave us a parable about weeds sown in a field of wheat, and he was illustrating that the church throughout this age would be infiltrated by people who look to be believers, but actually are not. And Jesus talked about seeds sown on different soils. Remember that parable? Some of it would spring up and it would look healthy at the beginning, but in the end, many were not going to grow and produce a crop. Jesus has warned time after time after time in Matthew that this age is going to include many people who look like Christians, maybe even act like Christians, certainly spend time around Christians, but who are not genuinely Christian. Friends, do you understand that it's possible for, for someone to look like a believer, even act like a believer, but not genuinely be a believer. You get that? Do you know that there will be people who will be drawn to the church for reasons other than Jesus? Does that surprise you? Well, these days it's becoming less and less popular, but some people, some people will come to the church for friendship, for social interaction, because if it's a good church, if it's a good local church, man, the people are going to be decent to you, right? They're going to be nice to you. How many of you arrived this morning to somebody being kind to you? Two of you did. <laughs> I'm concerned. Jason, like, where are you? Yeah, uh, you know. Um, 
How many of you, but did you, did, did you notice that when you're here, people are sweet to you? People smile at you, people hug you, people ask how you are. You know, for the most part, we like that stuff. Some people will come just for that social friendship and social interaction because do you realize how many people live in a world today where they're never smiled at? They're never touched. They're never hugged. They're never asked after. That makes people show up in a group like ours because we're different. Some people might come for for the chance to feel like they're important. We're a small group, we're working together. Hey, if you come here and look like a hard worker, you might be able to be a really important somebody. People like being a big fish in a small pond. Some people might think that if I go to church, that going to church is going to make God like me. It'll earn me favor with God. But see, none of those people would be, if that's all they have, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus. Know that being among the church does not make you a Christian. Again, as I used to hear a guy say, going to church doesn't make you Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Now, by the way, if you're here, whether you're Christian or not, I am glad you're here. I am. But don't think that sitting in these chairs makes you okay with God. Okay, let's go on. Let's keep learning as we follow the story. We're going to build the application. Point number two. No person's salvation comes from anyone other than Jesus. No person's salvation comes from anyone other than Jesus. It's a long point, but it it works. Verses 6 through 9. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So it's the middle of the night in the story, right? And here comes the announcement. The bridegroom's on his way. Get ready. Here he comes. And the ten young women, they wake up. You can imagine how frantic this would be, right? And and they they grab their torches and they get ready to meet the the bridegroom. It says they trimmed their lamps, which is like taking the the, the rags or if they're hanging off in a funny way or whatever, you can snip off some extra and tighten them up so they don't, you know, fall off and cause cinders and stuff like that. And and pour the the oil on there and get ready to light your torch. You're trimming it up and you're getting ready to go. And so the women are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, but the unwise five realize that they can't escort the bridegroom because they don't have oil. Their torches are not going to burn like they're supposed to. And so the unwise demand of the wise, hey, give me some of your oil. But the wise could not do so. There would not be enough oil for all ten. So the wise tell the unwise... Go see if you can rouse an oil merchant so that you can get the oil you should have had already. Now, remember, please, this is a parable. This is a story. Do not let yourself get caught up in whether or not you like the fact that the wise five couldn't share. See, a lot of times we get get off track in something like that. 
Here's the point. Jesus' point is that the wise, whether they wanted to or not, could not, they couldn't share their oil with the unwise. The unwise were supposed to be ready already. They were supposed to be ready to meet the bridegroom. They had been told what their job was. They knew what their job was. They knew what they were supposed to do. And they refused to have the oil that was necessary. And so they were not ready. Don't make a mistake here of trying to make an exact symbol out of the oil. Just to tell you, because I've heard people, the oil is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, people love to do that because there's some parables where the Holy Spirit's compared to, to an oil. But, but, but again, they were supposed to go buy it. You don't go purchase the Holy Spirit. This is not an allegory. This is a parable. Let's just see the simple point. Five were ready to meet the bridegroom. Five were not. And once the time of the bridegroom's arrival came, the ones who were ready had no way of helping the ones who weren't ready. What's the truth for us to learn here? No person's salvation comes from anyone other than Jesus. You're going to find out that this parable is about salvation. And with that knowledge, we're going to be reminded that each of us is individually responsible for how we individually respond to Jesus. Does that make sense to you? You personally are responsible for how you personally respond to Jesus. What I mean by this, I can't give you my response to Jesus. Right? I can't believe on your behalf. Your, your parents' children cannot respond to Jesus for you. They can care for you. They can teach you. They can bring you up with the word of God over you. But they can't make you believe. Parents, your children cannot believe in Jesus for you and make you a Christian. Each of us, as individuals will stand before our Lord to answer for whether or not we obey his command to repent and believe to be saved. The Apostle Paul, he thought about the Jewish race, his people, and he wished wished so desperately that he could make them believe. He wished so desperately he could give them salvation from what he knew. In Romans 9, 1 through 3, Paul writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul said, my heart breaks so much for the people. I would be willing to be accursed if they could be saved. But Paul knew that Paul could not give them his salvation. Every one of the people of Israel was individually responsible to respond to Jesus Christ. So do you understand that the only way you can have salvation is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You must repent and believe for yourself. Just as the wise girls could not give oil to the unwise ones, nobody else can give you their salvation. 
Now let me add, for doctrinal clarity here, when I say that you must believe for yourself, which is true, I am not saying that you believe by yourself. All saving faith is a gift from God. Thus, our sovereign God is the, the ultimate cause of all of our salvation. But, but, from the human perspective, our faith is a genuine personal decision from your perspective on this earth, you, you believe, and you're like, man, I, I believe. It's only later you find out what God was doing behind the scenes. So while we believe as a church, while we preach from this pulpit that God is sovereign, we will declare that you individually must believe to be saved. You cannot gain salvation from the faith of another person. Third point. Those who know Jesus will have eternal joy. Those who know Jesus will have eternal joy. Verse 10 says, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So it's while the unwise girls are off in the middle of the night trying to find oil, the bridegroom comes. Can you imagine this scene? The group of men, they arrive, the wise young women light up their torches, and the group, they shout, and they sing, and they dance through the streets, and the blazing torches light up the group in celebration as they go from the bride's house to the place of the marriage feast. And the people go into the feast, and they shut the door, and the celebration kicks off. What do you think this helps us to know? Without thinking about the five unwise women right now, this point in the story reminds us that those who know the Lord Jesus Christ are going to have eternal joy. The wise virgins do enter the marriage feast. You know, regularly in Scripture, eternity with the Lord Jesus is described in terms of a great celebration. The, the details of the party, that's not important right now. But what's important is that you and I understand, as the Word of God has always told us, those who are under the grace of God have everlasting life, and they have infinite joy in the presence of the Lord. So what are some things we know about spending forever with our God? Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. Listen to these words, please. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is fullness of joy with our God. There are Pleasures forever awaiting us. That means that we will in eternity with Jesus, get this, get this, we will have as much joy as our God can possibly give us. How powerful is our God? How strong is God? How able is God? Since God is infinitely powerful and infinitely wise, and he made us from the ground up, he knows how to do this right. Our joy in the presence of our God will be without end. We will never lack. We will have everything we need. I promise you this, friends, in heaven we will never be bored. 
We will have overwhelming joy that lasts forever. How about Psalm 84.10? For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Guys, there's no place better to be than in the presence of God. The psalmist tells us in poetry, it would be better to be a lowly servant in the house of God than to have the greatest honor you could ever have somewhere else. Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, see, being with the Lord is going to be like having a perfect feast forever. How many of you like that idea? Perfect feast forever. And there's there's an amen from this side of the room, right? As, As happy as you could ever be at a table where everything you could ever want on it is present. As content as you could ever be when with at a table surrounded by those who you love most. The presence of God in eternity is going to be infinitely greater than all that. Or how about Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea, the place of chaos in that, this, para, this uh, prophecy, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In eternity with our Lord, our God will comfort our every sorrow. No pain that you have ever felt will hurt you further in eternity with the Lord. He will dry our tears. He will dwell with us and allow us to dwell with him. He will give us the opportunity to, for the first time ever, perfectly, completely fulfill the purpose for which we exist. Do you guys understand that heaven is not some ethereal, wispy, cloudy existence where you grow wings and wear a halo and sit on a cloud and play a harp? That's not heaven. That's a bad cartoon. 
Jesus Christ will return and make all things new. He will dwell with us on a renewed earth where no trace of the curse of sin could ever be found. There will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. There will be no emptiness. There will be no frustration. There will be joy and there will be completeness that lasts forever. And in that existence, all who know Jesus will live forever in brand new resurrection bodies. You're not just a wispy spirit. You get a new body. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Again, are you looking forward to that new body? And we'll have something to do in heaven. We'll have something to do on that new earth. And guess what? I don't even know what that's going to be. But the word of God says that those who have been faithful to the Lord are going to get some sort of soul-satisfying, God-honoring task to fulfill. We saw a hint of that last week in Matthew 24, 45 to 47. Listen to these words that Jesus said. We read them last week. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Why? Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. There will be a stewardship for us in heaven. And I don't know what that's going to be like, but it's going to be really, really cool. Christians, don't let the little verse 10 The wedding feast begins. Don't let that pass you by. We want to be there. We want to be in the presence of the Lord for eternity. That's where your true joy is forever found. So look forward to it. Long for it. Those who know Jesus will have eternal joy. But you understand in the parable, there's another side, isn't there? What about those who aren't ready? What should those who do not know Jesus do with this message? Point number four. Point number four. Come to Jesus before it's too late. Come to Jesus before it's too late. 11 through 13 reads, Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The parable ends with a twist and it's a tragic one. This is the part that would have seemed really odd to the first century here. Everything up until now would have felt pretty normal. Maybe the girls forgetting to to have oil would felt weird, but now it feels really strange, really creepy. It's five women. Those who don't have their oil, they make it to the door of the feast. They knock on the door. They cry to the bridegroom. They ask to be let in now. And the bridegroom 
will not open the door. Instead, he declares, I do not know you. Now, like with the second point in this sermon, don't let yourself get so caught up in the story and decide whether you like the idea of the bridegroom opening the door or not opening the door. That's not our place to judge the actions and motives of the Lord. The point of the story, the reason Jesus is telling you this, is he wants you to know that if a person misses their opportunity to enter the feast with the bridegroom, there are no other doors and there is no such thing as a second chance. And the connection from story to real life is pretty easy to draw. This is a parable that's about the church about the kingdom of God. In this age, there are going to be people who are going to be saved. And there are also going to be people who look and act kind of like saved people. At least in some areas of their lives, they'll, they'll fill a seat at the church. They may put money in the box. But they're not actually saved. Now, do notice this, by the way. This parable is not about somebody losing salvation. The bridegroom doesn't say to the unwise virgins, you know, I used to know you, but now I don't. He just says, I don't know you. I never knew you. They were never under his grace. Well, verse 13 is the point, though, isn't it? Watch, therefore, because you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is telling everybody who hears his words, be aware. Why? Because you don't know the hour when you are going to be called to meet the Lord. You don't know. It might be the day that you die. Do you know when that's going to be? It may be when Jesus cracks the sky and returns in power and great glory. That may be when you meet the Lord. But I can tell you this, regardless of whether it's when you die or when Jesus comes back, you don't know how long you have until you're going to be called to stand before the Lord. So the call, the earnest call, is to come to Jesus before it's too late. Now, what do you need to know here? God, who made us, is perfect and holy. And because of that, God cannot allow us to go against his perfection. Holiness cannot allow opposition to holiness. God must rightly punish sin if God is indeed a righteous judge. But all people on earth have sinned against God. You've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. All humanity has sinned against God. And none of us, none of us has ever measured up to God's standard of perfection. How close do you think you are to perfect? And if you and I face God as his enemies... God will rightly judge us for our sin by sending us to hell forever. That's the word of God. But God is gloriously merciful, friends. God the Father sent Jesus Christ, God the Son, to earth to save a people for himself. Jesus lived out a perfect human life. Jesus died on a cross 
Son of God paying the price for the sins of other people. He shed his blood as a sacrificial payment for every sin God would ever forgive. And Jesus rose from the grave after his death. He's alive today. He has a body. He has eyes and hands. and He's not just a spirit. He is literally alive right now. And Jesus commands us. He says, everybody who wants to be forgiven, come to Jesus to find life. How do you get that life then? What do you do? Do you go to Jesus and perform a task? Do you go to Jesus and give a certain ritual? Do you you perform a sacrifice? No. Jesus says, repent and believe. What does that mean? It means you admit to Jesus that you are a sinner. I hope you have no trouble with that. It means that you decide that you no longer want to live in rebellion against God. That's a big one. It means that you believe that Jesus died and rose again to rescue you. And then entrust your very soul to Jesus. Pray. Call out in prayer to Jesus to forgive you based on his finished work. Declare to Jesus, I'm bowing to you as my Lord forever. Declare to Jesus, I'm not the boss anymore. You can be the boss for the rest of my days. Repent, believe, and be saved. The whole point of this parable is to give us a solemn warning. Every last one of us is going to meet Jesus one day. Here's the question. Will you be ready You can't rely on somebody else's relationship with God for your own forgiveness. Husband, you cannot say, well, my wife believes, so I'm fine. God commands you personally to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And the warning is for you and for all of us. Don't wait. Come to Jesus before it's too late. In this parable, ten young women all looked alike. Five were ready to meet the bridegroom. Five were not. Are you ready to meet the Lord? If you're not ready to meet the Lord, you will face judgment when you meet him. But if you are under his grace when you meet him, you get joy and life forever. Let's bow together and let's pray.